All right, episode three. Can I, I don't know, Ryan, how are we to episode three already? It seems like the weeks are just flying by right now, but... I know. I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm hoping for Thanksgiving. That's usually like my, uh, my finish line, you know, as far as just the mental part of the season. But, you know, just like we talked about, it's getting closer to renovation season, overseeding season, and, and that fall is truly the start of, uh, of getting started for next year. You know, that's really the beginning point. So probably a good idea that we talk about more of that today and a little bit more in depth um, next steps of where we left off last week. Yep. So we'd like to talk about some questions that uh, kind of came in on YouTube. And then also we would like to talk about the renovation steps and how that kind of looks in terms of we did all of our preparation last in our last episode. And then now what are the actual steps and how do you actually get things completed? So yeah, um, how things? How have things been going out where you are as far as anything cooling down for you guys? You know, uh, yesterday was probably the first day in a long, long time, a couple months at least, that it, it rained pretty much all day here. Uh, off and on, some drizzles, some shower, but, you know, we had probably, I'd say, six to eight hours of rain. Not much, you know, under a half an inch, but um, it was good to see a nice slow soaking uh, rain, albeit not much, but so, and it's a little cooler here today. The cold fronts pass through and um, things are shaping up. So it's, um, you're definitely seeing what was just drought stressed and what is actually damaged from whether it be um, all the heat that we had or um, insect pest diseases, all that kind of stuff. So that's what, you know, I'm expecting to see now is as um, we get a little bit more soil moisture out there on some of the unirrigated stuff, you're going to know what's what here pretty quickly and probably have to think about either renovating or overseeding um, if you've got some dead grass out there. Yep. I was over at my neighbor's yesterday doing some of his uh, actual leveling renovation stuff, and you got that little bit of glimpse of fall, you know, with the north breeze <laughs> and the low humidity, and I was like, yes, this is coming finally. Yeah. 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 Not soon enough. Yep, that's true. It's been pretty pretty tough summer this year for us all, I think. Yeah, no doubt. But I mean, it's that, that's where it goes every year. You know, we have, you know, a bad spring, but an easy summer or vice versa. I, I can't I can only think of, you know, two or so years in the last 20 or so that I can really remember growing grass that were from start to finish were just incredibly simple and straightforward. Yep. So that's part of what we do and why we do it is to deal with the unexpected and handle the problems and challenges that come up uh, yep. the best we can. Yep. So let's get to some listener questions here right off the bat. I tried to grab a couple. There's actually quite a few in there that we probably need to go in and try to respond to a few more. But uh, as far as that goes, let's go to the first one here that I grabbed. And this said, I like to hear his thoughts. I'm assuming that's you, Ryan, on Mm -hmm. whether or not to aerate before sand leveling. I can see how it could improve the flow of water and oxygen. So I don't really see a downside. Also, would aerating a bluegrass lawn before overseeding help improve germination? So that's uh, two different questions there. So let's start with um, aerating before sand leveling. Uh, I do believe in that for the simple fact that maintaining that interface, right? So we've got, you know, a soil layer and then the sand layer on top. And we're not going to get into the whole concrete debate. That's an entirely separate issue. But I do believe that um, in managing that interface and allowing water to come down, you don't want to create a bathtub if you can help it. But I do know that... uh, you know, some of it might not be practical in some situations. So uh, I think doing that, once you do the sand cap though, and once you start leveling with sand, you've now committed yourself, um, 
to, to only top dressing with sand from that point forward. And the reason being is if you do pull a core and you do break that up with a mower or a drag mat or something like that, and now we've got finer textured soil over coarser texture soil. So we've got native soil base. We've got our sand cap that we put on top to level. And now we've got this thin layer of dirt and soil mixed together uh, or dirt and dirt and sand mixed together that could create some issues. Mm -hmm. So um, you're probably in a, in a solid time only situation where we're not trying to pull cores. We're just trying to poke holes. And so that's kind of going forward the next steps of how I would look at that, but there is no downside. Um, and then make sure that going, that. going forward, could you, if you core air, if you core aerated after that, you would basically just have to collect those clippings and then put the sand down again. Correct. You'd be collecting all those cores and just putting that down. So I think, I think somebody on the lawn discord just did that and it looked rather intense. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> rather intense. So especially if you're not the machinery, like, you know, we would on a golf course or a sports field to do something like that. So I think the other part of the question, aerating uh, a bluegrass lawn before overseeding, would it help improve germination? Uh, it definitely would in the holes um, because you're going to have more porosity, more airspace, uh, space for water to uh, infiltrate and get in there too. So in that case, you're going to see a benefit there. And I think we might talk a little bit about aeration today. So we'll kind of go over a little bit more of how impactful that is, but it would help. Uh, and maybe we can quantify that a little bit here uh, as we go through stuff. Okay. Uh, second question is, love the show, want to reseed and do a little reno, but I'm overrun with creep, creeping Charlie in some areas. Do I have to wait till it's cooler to kill that? Uh, if I have to wait, then do I lose my reseeding window opportunity? Lastly, what if I wanted to core aerate and then incorporate seed? So again, a little bit about aeration there, but yeah, the aeration and seed thing is fine. Um, I think it's really important how you, uh, the, the sequence in which you follow there and then also the methods, um, and tools that you use to do that. So again, we'll, we'll definitely get into that, uh, through our video here, but, as far as the creeping Charlie goes, um, I don't know where this uh, this person is, but um, assuming that you're under, you know, 85 or so during the day, and even if you have to spray in the morning time when it's a little bit cooler, uh, triclip here is your best bet. So um, 32 fluid ounces to the acre, so about um, 0.75 fluid ounces per thousand. Check your label to be sure uh, on your product, but go ahead and spray that out, and that will take care of your creeping Charlie. And uh, again shouldn't have any, any major issues as long as you're below 85. And, um, I, I can't remember the reseed interval on that product exactly, but check, check the label to be sure. should be less than 30 days. Yeah. I think I've used T zone before, but you don't want to mess around too much with that in the heat. So no, no. Yeah. It, again, spray early if you're going to spray, um, and try to time it up with, especially if you're in the Midwest, we've got some cooler temperatures coming next week. So, um, have your product ready and, and be ready to go. Mm -hmm. Next question is curious. What about soil that has disease or fungus? Would it be killed off with glyphosate and then fine to be reseeded or does the soil need to be removed? I have fairy ring in one area. Yeah. So with fairy ring, uh, glyphosate's not going to do anything to that. So um, that's a soil born, born fungus um, that, you know, you can manage it in a couple of different ways and you can use um, fungicides, um, as a drench application. So not just, you know, spraying them with your little backpack sprayer, or um, I wouldn't recommend using a hose and sprayer, but it's a high volume, very targeted application to uh, combat those things. The other way to manage it is just strictly through color. So 
try to even out, you know, if it's a uh, type one or type two. So there's different types of fairy ring that um, one is basically destructive to turf. You're going to see dead spots or dead rings. And then the other one uh, causes it to be more green. So if you have the, um, the type that causes it to be more green, you can kind of balance out color a little bit more uh, with iron or nitrogen, things like that, and manage through it. But uh, to the to the question there, um, removing it is the only true way to do it. But like I say, it won't do anything for that. Okay. Um, this question is kind of a funny one. So, what grass yes. cultivar is a Taurus SHO? Because we were talking okay. last week about uh, a little bit about Tauruses versus Mustangs in terms of grass seeds and cultivars and fun stuff like that. That is a clever question. Now, let, let so. For the listeners that don't know what the Taurus SHO is, that's the special high output Taurus. Okay. So this is going to be the guy who probably owned a Mustang or gal that owned a Mustang previously. Um, life happened. Maybe you got a couple of kids. Maybe you just got more crap you got to haul around now, but you still want to have a little bit of power and speed. So, you know, in the grass uh, sense, you know, these are not the, um, you know, the super high end elite. Uh, cultivars. There may be a notch below that and a little bit more forgiving blend where maybe they have, you know, they don't look as deep and dark green, but they've got better disease resistance or better drought tolerance or things like that to where, you know, you can let them go a little bit, but you still want to be able to um, party and look good when, when you need to. So uh, that would be, you know, in a lot of senses, um, I know locally here, there's a couple of seed blenders that they have, um, you know, the super elite and the sod quality type stuff. Uh, and then just one notch below that they have, uh, like a bluegrass blend or a tall fescue blend that is in that market. So I would definitely talk to, um, sod farms in your area. Those are usually a good, um, resource to kind of bounce things off of because they've got to grow for different price points. They've got to grow for the ultra high end folks, um, in the pro market. And they've also got to be able to grow for, um, you know, builders, homeowners, things like that. So they know those differences in the, in the strata, so to speak of uh, the different seeds and what you can get out of them. But, you know, yeah, if you, like I said, it, it's like a Mustang, but it's got four doors and it looks a little bit more dorky. So that's what the Taurus SHO is. Yeah. I was thinking of it more as some kind of sleeper a little bit, you know, just one of those, it's not going to be a super fast car, but it's still going to be come up to a light and you see a Taurus and you're probably thinking I mean, anything can blow the doors off, but it's a bit of a sleeper. So, Yeah. All right. One last question. This came from our little group of lawn nerds, Ryan, that we are a part of, oh, but they okay. wanted to know what grass you have at home and are you tired of grass by the time you get home every day? So do you take care of it or do you just sort of let it sort of be eh? So I don't say, I wouldn't say, eh, but uh, I don't, I don't put a ton of effort into it just because, um, you know, coming from the golf side, I've, I've always tried to push things, um, to their limits. So I like drying stuff down as far as I can get it. I like, you know, understanding thresholds of populations for weeds and diseases and things like that. So, um, uh, what I like to do is, and what I've got in my yard right now is uh, Barenberg HDT, uh, Kentucky bluegrass. And, that area there, it's basically just planting super elite varieties and then just beating the snot out of them mm-hmm. <laughs> and seeing how, how far you can take it. Because every time, you know, I have somebody say, oh, you know, this, this is, you know, the best stuff out there, but, you know, and I always ask, well, what does it look like at its worst? You know, if you take all the makeup off, what does it really look like? And so, um, 
you know, to your, in your uh, old profession, it's kind of like, you know, anybody can sound good in the studio, right? But when you put them live in front of a crowd, you can really sort out who's, who's a good musician and a good artist um, versus, you know, somebody who's not. So that's, that's kind of where I come from is I like to beat up those varieties. And then uh, my backyard is just whatever it is. You know, I, I do, um, I don't necessarily subscribe to the whole organic lawn uh, thing, but I do think it's interesting to kind of study in, in culture and look at, you know, in a place where it's quote unquote safe for me to do that, um, how different things interact and where I can do to control those in a different way. Because mm-hmm. uh, I do, there is a lot of pressure, um, especially, you know, like parks and rec and school districts and things like that to um, take those traditional or conventional um, treatments out of the loop and put in something that might be a little bit more environmentally sensitive or whatever. And so I try to try to do that here in the backyard and use that as an experiment for things. And there's times it looks really good and there's times it looks awful and that's okay with me. So I just like, uh, I like being able to mess around with stuff um, in a space that won't get me fired. I think that that's kind of what I have found too is, uh, you know, for the most part, area inside of my fence in the last few years or that area kind of outside there closer to the creek if you ever watch any of my videos Mm -hmm. uh that was sort of what i was trying to do is just limit a lot of things see what how what would work what wouldn't work and you know using some more organic based stuff but i get a lot of questions from canadians and i actually just responded to one a couple days ago that i got an email from and he was like can you please show us an area that you don't really treat with a whole bunch of stuff because we can't get anything up here and I want to know what it would look like. I was like, well, I'm pretty much doing that right now outside the fence and like four applications a year of fertilizer. It doesn't look good in the summer. There's weeds coming in. There's different things. I don't use any pre-emergent. Does it look okay? Yeah. Is it like the rest of my yard or, or any of the higher end areas? No, it doesn't really look the same, but yeah. And I think that's a fair thing to do. I think it's always good to, um, you know, have, have an area, even if it's just a small spot that, um, you know, if we're talking about treatments and fertilizers and, uh, control products and all that kind of stuff is, you know, even if it's as small as like a shoebox and you cover something up every time you spray and fertilize, just so you've got sort of a reference point of, if I didn't do any of this, this is what it would look like, you know? So on the pro side, that helps me a lot to, to show, um, to show clients and stakeholders and like that, you know, why, they spend as much as they do or, you know, whether it be time or money on taking care of um, fields and whatnot, but it can also help you in your home situation. You know, you could leave that little shoebox size piece untreated and show, you know, your significant other or your neighbor, whoever, uh, your YouTube followers and say, if I didn't do this, this is what it would look like. And I think that's always a really powerful statement just to, just to know, you mm-hmm. know, what the, uh, what the difference is. So, yep. Yeah. That's what I think too. And, it comes back to our talk last week of expectations too. And some people Absolutely. aren't as you know crazy about having the high end everything. So some of it's good for them. And if you're okay with our climate and summer, kind of letting things just be what they are and then getting back to a really nice yard in spring and fall, I think that's definitely doable for, for pretty much anybody with not really that many inputs into it. For sure. I think that's a, that's a good topic for us, you know, as we get into maybe the off season is just, how, you know, how do we frame and set expectations at a, in a multitude of different levels? But there's a process that, that you know, I've kind of 
learn to jump into any situation, whether it's, you know, the people that, you know, can't rub together two nickels uh, all the way to a person who's got the blank checkbook and money's important, but I think setting those expectations first will help you help guide how you spend that money, no matter how much it is. So that'd be, be a good topic going forward, but Hey, it's, it's beautiful out here. It's, you know, beginning of August. So let's talk about renovation. Let's do it. So I think today we wanted to cover the actual renovation steps. And I'm, I'm interested to hear some of your experience because you have a lot of different projects that you've worked on from, you know, field or sports turf to regulars, you know, I'm doing homeowner stuff. So I think kind of blending those two together and having a chat about it should be a bit interesting. But I wanted to say off the bat was that I do have a couple of playlists the last couple of years that I've done basically step by step. And they're a little bit different because last year, we'll talk about this too, I had a more sloped area that I did. And Ryan and I had a discussion about that. And he's like, you need this blanket and you need it right now before you like spend all this money and then it goes down the drain, which it would have, which we can talk about too. But um, so I think there's there's a couple playlists there if you're interested in learning, you know, step by step and seeing it, and then having this discussion today, I think will help a lot of people too to understand the steps and and how that goes. No doubt, and I've, I've watched those videos too. I think they're very informative, and I think um, having the being able to have a reference point to go back to and say, okay, they said this, and I didn't quite understand it, so use that, you know, if you're listening right now, use that to your advantage, uh, to help you, you understand what, you know, what we're talking about if you have questions and certainly feel free to post in the comments and we'd be glad to answer. Mm-hmm. So let's go over the full renovation steps first. I think we'll talk about overseeding a bit too, cause I have a few questions that I get from people all the time on the overseeding process that I'd like to ask you about. But as far as full renovation, we talked about it last week, get started with your method of removing the existing turf sooner rather than later. It takes probably more time than people think. So that's, that's where to start. Yeah. I think, you know, from spraying out and starting there, um, you know, we talked a little bit about that last week, but you know, so we're, we're what we call following F A L L O W following the, um, the ground to you know, make sure that there's no other weeds or anything else that comes up, nothing comes back. And then uh, at that point, we're removing vegetation and there's a couple of different ways that we can do that. We could take a sod cutter and take all that stuff out. Now that's pretty cumbersome. Um, there's some advantages and disadvantages to that. Um, but you know, probably the most tried and true method and, um, I guess the most straightforward method is scalping. So we're just going to set that mower down and you, you don't want to bite off everything all at once. Uh, you might have to step it down over the course of, uh, three, four, five mowings but to take that stuff down and get it as low as that you possibly can to remove all those clippings. It's a really important step is um, I've seen people fail at that one critical step where they leave all that vegetation, that dead vegetation out there on the surface and they try to seed into it and nothing happens. And so that dead decaying plant material um, is not going to be a conducive environment for uh, growing stuff in. Now what's left and what's, you know, the stems and those plants part plant parts that are left above ground they sort of act as like a mulch in a sense. Um, and that helps out a little bit, but we want to get that stuff out of there. So after that, um, you know, we talked about last time about leveling and whether that's going to be a sand leveling to correct some small minor grade issues, or if that means bringing in soil or moving soil within the property to, uh, correct any grade issues, um, unevenness, 
anything like that, any terrain issues that we want to take care of ahead of seeding. And I'll tell you, we talked a little bit about it last time, but you know, this is your chance. You know, this is your chance to correct um, any issues that that you have as far as grade goes. And I really, really encourage people to take advantage of it. It's really easy to say, ah, you know, I don't have the time to do it. You know, make the time because that's going to make a big difference. Um, you yeah, know, the way I the lawn looks and maintains. I mean, what what have you seen? You know, you've you've leveled more lawns than I have. I've leveled all all sorts of things, but in the lawn sense. You know, how have you seen some horror stories of people that skipped that step and and paid for it in the end? Yeah, well, I think that um, I was just talking about this with my neighbor last night when we were leveling some of his yard, and I was just thinking that same exact thing that I needed to reiterate on video was just you have this one opportunity when everything is a blank, you know, slate at that point, and you can just really take that time. I know it might cost a little bit of money if you need to bring in some soil; it's going to cost some work, but man, it's a good opportunity to really take that advantage of starting over. There's there's not a lot of great ways if you're not going to go low with turf, I feel like, in the future to really add soil or something else and fix things as well as just when you're doing that full renovation, it's really the time to get that done. And so I was kind of reiterating that point to him that this is, this is in my opinion, the best way to really change the levelness of your yard at this point and have some great results. Yeah. And that goes from everything from, you know, the simplest things like mowing and not, you know, you're going down and you have that little dip that you always scalp when you come back up the hill or something like that, all the way to areas that are, um, you know, holding more water and during times of, um, you know, heavy rains or, you know, over irrigation or something like that. And those turn into disease hotspots. So again, it's going to cost you, more money and more heartache over time than it would to, you know, take care of those issues ahead of time. And if it's, uh, you know, if you can't afford to fix it right, I would strongly encourage you to think about maybe waiting and maybe, you know, this isn't the year and you kind of play defense and get ready for next year. If it's, uh, you know, too much soil for you to, to uh, pay for right now or something like that, but uh, try and, and make that money count, make that time investment count and, and do yourself a favor because it will definitely pay off in the long run. So the, uh, you know, once we get that done, um, as far as a uh, level surface, you know, we're, I think we're going to talk a little bit about um, using tenacity versus not using tenacity, which is a um, pre and post emergent uh, herbicide that will effectively, you know, it's going to help you, with a couple of things. One, especially in a fall seeding is um, emergence of weeds that are winter annuals. So they germinate in the fall and come up. And the most prevalent one that we're concerned about the most is uh, poa annua. So annual bluegrass. And so tenacity is relatively effective as a pre-emergent against that. Um, There's some, some really good work out of uh, Rutgers uh, university where they looked at this over the course of a couple, two, three years, um, going forward. And what they found is that it actually, um, it, it's efficacy was reduced in subsequent years. So the best year at work was the first year. So, you know, taking advantage of something like that when you're seeding, especially if you're doing, um, you know, high end elite cultivars and you don't want to have that contamination, or at least you want to delay that contamination because it's, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. Um, it's a really good tool to be able to use. So, and then seeding, um, you know, we're going to talk about some methods with that 
as far as getting that stuff in the ground, how it needs to go in um, and differences between um, species there. So Mm -hmm. differences between rye versus tall fescue versus uh, bluegrass. And then I think um, just getting that stuff either raked and or rolled in, that's a really, really key part. Um, So making sure that we have seed to soil contact and making sure that the seed is evenly distributed, all that sort of stuff is uh, a really key component. And then we're going to do our um, fertilizer, our starter fertilizer and water at that point. And at that point, it's just about managing moisture yep. and we'll definitely talk about that so one one but, part there i think too on that going all the way back to after you scalp that i have found is on that first renovation that i did on the side yard i, I had a pretty thick turf there already so by the time that i scalped there still just was a lot of material there to where i really couldn't see down to the soil very well and you know, i've set my mower as low as it would go but an inch and a quarter is still quite a bit of stuff there. So I found that actually getting sort of a dethatcher or scarifier in there and removing some of that material really helped me too, because I want to see an area where I know the seed is getting down to the soil and it's not just sitting on top of a canopy of a bunch of dead stuff. Absolutely. I mean, you should see soil. You should see your dead plant parts sticking up out of the ground and then soil underneath. So, um, again, probably looking at your videos would definitely help uh, paint that picture a little bit better, but for folks that if you're wondering, you know, did I rake up enough or did I collect enough? I've always found that um, even in a dense, dense turf, like you got to go back and rake it um, or blow it off. I, I've done both. I've done both where I've loosened up um, that stuff that gets mashed in after you mow. And even if you're bagging and collecting all those clippings, there's still that layer of stuff. So whether it's loosening up with a rake um if you've got a larger lawn, there's different attachments that you can get, like a deep thatching rake or um, one of the electric or gas power dethatchers, I think, like you're talking about, Ryan. Mm-hmm. And from there, um, it's just about removing that material. So if you're going to blow it up into windrows and then collect it and put it in um, lawn bags or haul it off somewhere or something like that, it's really important part of the, the process to get rid of all that stuff and be down to just some dead plant parts sticking up out of the ground and then um, bare soil. Yeah, and it's not too difficult. Honestly, it's kind of a dirty job, but it's really, once that grass is dead, it pretty much comes out of there pretty easily at that point. Yeah, no doubt. So I think we should talk a bit there, touch a bit on tenacity and sort of the when should you use it or should should anybody go and think about not using it? I mean, what would be... So I, I... I don't know if there's anybody that doesn't benefit from using it in a cool season setting. It's um, I consider it to be like a rider on your insurance policy. You know uh, you know, when you were doing um, you know, an insurance policy and they say, Oh, you want, you know, do you want uh, vacation coverage on your homeowner's policy or something, you know, weird stuff that they ask you like that. And you're like, no, I don't think I'll ever have a problem. It's the same thing when you're seating. It's an easy thing to pass over and say, well, I just killed everything. I'm not going to get POA. I I really don't have to worry about that. I should be fine. And again, for the money, you know, what you're going to spend, I think it's a really, really uh, valuable tool. So the, the uh, interesting thing about it in particular, as far as um, a homeowner's concerned, you know, there's two different formulations. So they have um, the regular liquid formulation uh, that's made by Syngenta and is sold in eight ounce bottles. So that eight ounce bottle will spray, um, basically half an acre 
uh, at the full rate that you can do in a year, which you wouldn't use that uh, necessarily all the way through fall uh, on an overseeding. So that, you know, you're talking, you know, maybe 65, 75 bucks, something like that, um, depending where you get it from. And then the alternative there, if you don't have that much area to cover. So let's just say, you know, your lawn is 5,000 square feet. Well, if I do three apps at four ounces um, to the acre, and that's to the acre. So that's a very, very small amount over 5,000 square feet, three times, you've got a lot left over. So are you going to use that or are you not? So the folks um, that make the technical material for tenacity, which is a, a chemical called mesotrione, they took that to another company and basically said, hey, can we in, uh, impregnate this on fertilizer and specifically starter fertilizer to use as sort of a one-step process? And so you can buy that product now. Uh, I believe they sell it in big box um, in smaller bags and like 18-pound bags. I believe Scott's. Uh, yeah, I think Scott's has market. it. Yep. Scott's has that, and then you can get a pro product from the Andersons, which is a 40-pound bag, and those bags are going to run, uh, they vary a little bit more widely, but somewhere between like uh, 50 and 80 bucks. And so that bag, I believe, covers, if I want to, don't quote me, but I want to say about 9,000 square feet. So that's, those are sort of the differences. I mean, you're going to pay, obviously, um, a little bit more per unit area with the, uh, a lot more really with the unit area on the um the granular product, but it's a one-stop shop. You put that stuff down and you've got your starter out and you've got your uh, tenacity out as well. You know, there's some concerns there with the formulation as far as if a granular is as effective as uh, a liquid in that specific situation, there's definitely going to be a, a little bit of a reduction in efficacy when it comes to using a product like that. And the pearls are really small. I mean, the pearls are probably... Um, if folks here are familiar with, um, there's a system they use for sizing fertilizer called size guide number SGN. So a typical um, site one fertilizer might be 200 SGN. Uh, this stuff is going to be like 100 SGN. So this is small enough that a golf course superintendent would put it on greens and it would fall in between the foliage there. So very, very small particles. So you get better coverage as far as, you know, per square inch, but um, it's still not comparable to spraying a liquid out of a properly calibrated sprayer. So yeah, and that comes just, down to, I think, the sprayer part there too because you you need to be pretty comfortable with spraying. I feel like, not just to use a term, all willy-nilly out there, just kind of going crazy. But um, yeah. So that, that, I think, the question that I get from a lot of homeowners as far as using Tenacity is just their comfort level with the spraying or do they own the equipment and that's where I think that granular probably would be better than doing nothing at all. Yeah. The point of entry or the barrier to entry on the, on the granular product is much lower, right? However, it's just as important. And I know that you know this, but for everybody who's listening, it's just as important to make sure that that mm -hmm. is properly calibrated as well. So uh, there, there's trade-offs in all of this and every single thing that we're going to talk about today, there's trade-offs, but uh, that's one piece that, you know, for the money, it's worth adding in there uh, to give you a little bit of benefit. And there's other winter annuals too that can pop up. It's not just Poe annual, but um, there's other things that can can jump up and get you. You know, you're not gonna have to worry about the summer annuals like crabgrass and goosegrass and uh, foxtail things like that. But you do need to um, do need to make sure that you're on on point for those winter annuals uh, as they start to germinate. Yep. in say August. 
How important do you think then is the starter fertilizer and getting that down when you're growing seed? It's if you've got ample phosphorus in your soil, and this is why it's important to soil test. Um, my answer is generally it's not as important. Uh, if you if you are lower in, in phosphorus um, and even in uh, a higher pH situation where phosphorus might not be as available, those are things that I would look to and say, okay, hey, we might need to make uh, a supplemental phosphor phosphorus application here as a starter fertilizer. And the reason being is uh, those younger plants, those seedlings, when they first come up, um, you know, they're going to be hungry for phosphorus. It's a, it's a critical part in um, the physiological development of the plant. And with those being young plants, they don't have a ton of energy to go in, in physical structures yet really to push out and um, use their own plant exudates and things like that to, to take up phosphorus that might be um, in inorganic forms around them. So in a, in a mature t- standard turf, um, those roots are able to exude uh, certain chemicals that balance pH or allow it, the plant to take up phosphorus, even at very, very low levels. Seedlings don't necessarily have that same capability just because their younger plants are not fully developed. And so that's why having that out there uh, is, a, is a crucial step if you're low um, or if you have high pH. So those are the situations where I would consider it, but absolutely 100% do a soil test because that's going to tell you everything you need to know. Mm-hmm. So the other question I think that I get a lot is where does core aeration fit into the full renovation process? Is it something that should be added? When would it be added? Those are the questions I think I see a lot of times. In general, it's a good practice. Um, and you're going to have folks that say it's, it's going to bring up weed seeds. It's going to do all, all this stuff. And my take is, you know, we have tools to control most any weed that we face um, in a cool season situation with the, you know, with a few mainly being uh, Poa annual, Poa trivialis, a couple other ones that are difficult to control, if not impossible without just non-selective herbicide. That said, um, I feel more confident about that and controlling those than I do about any other better way to get oxygen into my root zone. All right. So that's, that's sort of the give and take there. Um, now the, the reality is, is that the types of aerators that we use in home one, so you'll see those ones you can get at the rental yard or home Depot or something like that. And those, while they're effective and it's doing something, um, you know, we would like to see in a pro turf setting, we would like to see, um, at a maximum about 20% of the surface area, uh, disrupted with aeration every year on the low side maybe as low as 5% on some areas like, you know, a fairway or um, a a sports field that's not used quite as much. So that displacement needs to go up as, you know, traffic and everything goes up as well. So depending on your type of lawn and what you've got going on, that's how you would gauge that, that five to say 20%. These rental yard um, uh, units are going to give you somewhere in the order of like two or 3% at at a time, maybe uh, depending on their spacing. And so it's really one of those things of, is that enough? You know, can you do it? Can you go over it twice? And what's that going to do to your seed bed? Can you go over it three times? What's that going to do to your seed bed? I, so I think there's a place for it and you're going to see uh, enhanced germination um, and enhanced plant health inside where those aerification holes are, but that might only be, you know, three to 
8% of your entire lawn space. So uh, I think it's, it's a good practice, but you got to stay on a program. It's not just, I'm going to do it because I feel like it because we're renovating. I'm never going to do it again. I would try to get on that, you know, well in advance um, of any renovations. But if you're here and you're now, um, it's not going to hurt anything uh, per se. Mm-hmm. I think I've, I've done it pretty much both ways where I have or have not done it and didn't really see a major difference in terms of the end results, just of the mm-hmm. project itself. But yeah, the continuation of the doing that over time and, and staying on a maintenance program is important. Yeah. And I, that's, that's really what it comes down to is um, making the decision to make that part of a maintenance program and not just an aeration step or excuse me, a, a, a renovation step uh, by adding aeration. I think that's really the sort of the fork in the road that you have to take one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So if they were doing leveling, would you probably put that before or would you do in terms of the yeah. step? Yeah, because if you go over, it, let's just say we've put, you know, a couple yards of topsoil down an area and leveled it, even if it's, you know, just a couple inches. When you take the aerator over that and disrupt that, it's going to, you know, mess that grade up or it could really screw things up. So I do that ahead of time and then put my topsoil on top of that. Yep. That's what I did on yep. my on my side yard. I actually did renovate. And the other part of it is that if your soil is kind of, if you've been watering, but you haven't had much rain and then your soil may not be all that soft at that point too, then those things like to really bounce around on top of the surface. That's a great point. I mean, you know, the integrity of that process, so to speak, right? So the conditions that are present for us to be able to do it, um, like we wouldn't, we wouldn't go out and spread fertilizer in the rain. You know, it's the same thing with coeration where if it's bone dry and you could bounce a basketball, you know, or play the Wimbledon final on your lawn, probably not a good time to take the aerator out there. Um, unless you're wearing a mouthpiece and a helmet, maybe that might be, a be good PPE. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's shift a bit to the overseeding process then. Um, maybe what the differences are in terms of the steps and, you know, I get a lot of people on that. I have a, an overseeding, a couple overseeding videos that have done really well on YouTube, but a couple of them, people are always telling me, oh, that's never going to work. It has to be fully covered with something. And that's a step that I really have not fully done in the past. Usually I would kind of go through these same steps, like scalping it down, maybe thinning it out if, it, if I'm seeing that it's too thick and then core aerating, and then putting seed on. And then after that, I mean, many times I've sort of just started watering at that point and not covered the actual yard with anything top dressing wise other than just what was laying there from aeration. And I've had perfectly fine results with that. And I think you just hit, hit the nail on the head as far as if you wanted to do the, uh, what I would call the, uh, keep it stupid, simple, not keep it simple, stupid, but just keep it stupid, simple. And we're just going to whack this stuff down. We're going to throw a seed out there. We're going to keep it watered and here we go. That's it. You know, so it can be that simple. Um, and I, f- I feel like, yeah, you're right. I've, I've seen that. I mean, I did, um, a couple cultivars ago, I, I did a, a project just right here on my lawn like that, where it was just like, I didn't have a ton of time. I knew what I wanted to do. Um, and I just wanted to add in an additional um, cultivar to what was already there. And so it was just uh, the only step I added was I sprayed um, PGR on the lawn first. So mm-hmm. I sprayed it uh, with, with uh, Trinex and Pac Ethyl with TNEX to slow it down, then scalped it, and then came back with the seed 
and just kept it watered and yeah, it turned, it turned out fine. But I think even you've got folks that, you know, do you get questions of folks that are like, I can't scalp or I want, I like what I have right now. I just want to kind of intercede into what I've got and not necessarily like a full on overseed. Do you get those questions often? Yeah. I, I mean, there's some of those. I think what we talked about last week was one of the, with bluegrass is probably the most common question that I get or that people yeah. really like bluegrass and they just want to add more of it. But let's say they already have a great yard or a thick yard. Well, we talked about that. There's kind of some strategy there. Otherwise that bluegrass that you're adding in has a really tough time competing against everything that's already doing well there. Yeah. And the situation I see it in quite honestly, a lot is, um, tall fescue where, you know, especially this year, you know, we've been hammered with brown patch here in certain situations, uh, unirrigated stuff. Like I said, we're finding out here pretty quick what did make it, what didn't make it, um, as far as, um, drought and heat stress. So that's a situation where, you know, I don't want to beat the snot out of the lawn and I've got to come back in with something because I've got, you know, dead spots to fill in a, uh, a non-spreading or a bunch type grass. So that's, those are situations where, um, you know, again, using uh, tools and equipment at your, at your disposal. So if there's smaller areas, you know, working that up with, you know, like the little garden weasel or seeding tool is a good one. Um, Alternatively, if you've got a large area and you know that, you know, uh, whether it's a larger lawn or something like that, or just a, a wide, more wide scale type of thing, uh, those slice seeders can be effective in going into an existing stand. You know, what you're giving up there in certain respects is, you know, the competition from a taller turf stand that's going to limit light. It's also going to compete for nutrients and water and things like that. So kind of have to hedge your bets there a little bit. And the one common mistake I see um, with folks when they do these, uh, what I would call interseedings into and without, you know, doing anything to the existing grass really is, um, just put out way too much seed. Like they think they've got to overcompensate. And so I always try to err on the lighter side of the seeding rate and continue to build that up. So it might take a couple of times to get there. Um, whether that's two in the fall or a fall and a dormant seed, things like that. But, you know, getting back to the overseeding, where you're, you're taking it down, you can cover it with the top dressing. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And even if it's a new seeding as well, there's, um, there are, there are benefits and there are drawbacks, right? So what are you going to cover it with? So what you tell me, what are some of the typical materials that, um, your followers and other folks in, in this space use as a top dressing for, either an overseed or a new lawn situation. Yeah, I think for me, it's obviously been one of the easiest things that I've found success with would be peat moss. And okay. there's there's some disadvantages to that in my experience too because it doesn't stay in place very well if you get a pretty good rain. So you might see it just pretty much wash away and that's kind of what it is. But if you can get it there um, and you're, you're at a point where it's not any extreme storms or anything happens, you get lucky like that, then I mm -hmm. found that it does do pretty well for me. It holds a little extra moisture there. And and wherever I've had it, and maybe on a bare spot and something washed off, I've always found the germination on that spot that had it to be better than the spot that didn't have anything covering it at all. Now, over mm -hmm. time, I mean, you can always fix those little things. I don't think it's like the end of the world, but... So that, that would be one. Two, I tried some of those 
straw like with the tackifier mixes that they have out now. Uh, okay, I, I've tried those before, and how was that? I found that it was difficult to get an even layer put down that didn't actually smother the what you wanted to grow. Yeah. And so there's that. And then also just in general, like straw, people just taking like a straw bale and going crazy with that. No, I think so. Everything that you just described, I mean, the disadvantage or the problem or the barrier with all this stuff, right, is distribution. How do I how do I effectively spread straw without turning it into a mess? How do I spread the uh, straw blanket with the tackifier without it being uneven? And the same goes for uh, peat moss. I mean, they all have their disadvantages and anything I tell you is going to have its own disadvantages as well. Um, as far as peat moss goes, I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, I, I, and to be fair, uh, used a ton of it, um, you know, probably 20 years or so ago, um, back when I was really first getting my start um, in leading projects and, and doing different things on the golf course and things like that, where on seating projects or, you know, we've got uh, an area that ha- had been disturbed due to construction, things like that, and used it quite extensively. But I learned over time a couple of things about it that um, that took me away from it for a variety of different reasons. But, you know, basically the um, the carbon to nitrogen ratio on that product is really, really high. It's It's like 30 to 1, which isn't too far out of the range of what's what's good and what's not but um it's drawing in a lot of carbon and and could sequester some of uh your nitrogen slow down some of that decomposition that's in the soil and whatnot so that's one thing um low ph you know i've seen it and heard uh, anecdotally from folks that say that it affects um seed germination and everything like that i've not looked at the research closely enough if there even is any yeah to be able to say that so a lot of what you're hearing here is is, is anecdotal but the switch i made was going over to more of um a compost material so there's some there's some caveats there too those these are generally higher in salts and so that's a consideration as you're watering in new seedlings is you know you're flushing a lot of that through and into the seed bed and you got to flush a lot of it through to get it all out of there for it to be beneficial. You know, the other thing is the compost tend to be higher in pea, So you might even be able to like completely remove your uh, starter for an app and be okay with that because there's so much pea in uh, these compost pro- products relative to the rate that you have to put them down and top dress them in at. So there's some advantages and disadvantages there. I do find that they hold water more evenly, better. They stay in place a lot better because they're a more dense material than like a peat moss would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can find them in a variety of different settings. So, um, you know, one of the easiest ones to find is they sell mushroom compost in uh, like three quarter cubic foot bags at the big box stores, you know, so that's, that's something where I would just be looking to do like say an eighth of an inch, you know, so that's about half of a cubic yard, you know, 13 and a half cubic feet per thousand square feet, something like that. And again, the benefits of having nutrients available that are in that top dressing um, and not so much so that it's going to smother it, but enough there. And then also on that product where we're talking about, you know, carbon to nitrogen ratio, it's a lot lower. It's closer to like a 13 or 15 to one. And that's a little bit on the lower side, but I'd rather have um, the nitrogen portion available and less so of the carbon mm-hmm. when we're in a new seating situation. So what's the material look like? Because I know with compost, the other issue becomes, can you get anything 
that's fairly clean. Like sometimes it's got a, l- a bunch of bark in it or stuff that isn't, you know, you want, you want to find something that's a good material, but it's not always the easiest to do. No, for sure. And I think that's another thing we talk about is sourcing and this becomes an issue. So the stuff that comes out of the bag is very clean because it's, it's got to go through bagging equipment to actually get to market um, and, and stuff like what you're talking about, like sticks and um, other things like that just wouldn't, it wouldn't work with that. So I found that to be a really clean source. I think locally, you know, in your specific area, like here, um, our, uh, our municipality takes all of our biosolid waste uh, and then treats that and then bulks it with mulch, turns that into compost. And so what you get, I wouldn't necessarily use it if I was going to go like real low, if I was going to go say below an inch, but anything above that perfectly fine to use. So there's other places too. Um, I know around here and I've, and I've researched in other places around the country is you can, you can find um, finer grade material. So that's screened to say um, I'd say you want to be down to like half an inch screening uh, if at all possible, three quarters, you can get some bigger stuff through there, but that's if you're going uh, inch and below, if you're uh, say an inch plus or an inch and a half plus, especially that three quarter uh, and even maybe a one inch screen on your compost is going to be fine mm-hmm. you know, for what you're trying to do. And again, you're not trying to kick this stuff on, you know, inches thick. We're literally talking about just a covering to try and help you hold moisture and act more as a mulch than anything. Yep. You could also screen it yourself, Ryan. Remember. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> Ryan or human uh, screening machine. I think that was, didn't you used to work for Ringling Brothers and then until they uh, shut that down, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, what, that's where it came from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the other big topics, which thank you for talking about that there, because I don't, I don't think that there's been enough topics maybe about what the, what can you use for top dressing, the benefits, the, the things that are cons as well. So that, that's good, something for me to think about too and what I can maybe find for sourcing and things to try in the future. Yeah, and I think that that's the biggest thing is if you're, let's say you are a year out from doing this um, and just kind of doing some um, basic planning and we talked about you know sourcing of grass seed, but get to know the soil suppliers, the sand suppliers, the blenders, all these folks around town and not just, you know, you can go to the garden center a lot of times and they'll say, Oh, I'll sell you this or I'll get you that. Um, you know, I'll give you a great example. So, uh, there's a guy on the lawn discord, uh, down in Georgia that, uh, wanted to build a putting green in his, in his old man's backyard. And suffice to say that he had top dressed with this material, this sandy, loamy soil that would look it looked really good but it was like 40 bucks a ton or something crazy like that which you know for good sand i would pay 40 bucks a ton for really good sand so didn't think too much of it and then we started talking about this project of hey could i use that same material over here um at my dad's house and i was like there's there's got to be something closer better whatever so you know here's me in columbus ohio i picked up the phone and called like three different people i called uh a golf course guy that I know down there. And then I called a couple other people based on that phone call and got right to the source of the best sand that, that you can use down there to build that type of, um, that type of, uh, green or, or lawn area or whatever like that. So, you know, sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes it's not on Google and it's not on the internet. I mean, a lot of this stuff really isn't, uh, and it's just, you know, word of mouth and phone calls and knowing who to ask. So I, I implore you, if you are thinking about doing this in the future, 
start building that network of resources now, uh, seed side, soil, top pressing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, those are, those are really good relationships to have and just be able to sometimes just bounce a question off of not even buy anything. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's good advice for sure. Uh, that's what I found is the most difficult here is I've, I've really have been wanting to do some sand work maybe this fall yet, but still finding the right sand and getting someone to actually talk to me has been a bit more difficult than I would have anticipated. So going to walk in there with a briefcase full of cash, Ryan. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm going to have to find that <laughs> cash first. But. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about watering a bit because another yeah. thing that people underestimate as far as I think what I've seen personally in the comments and stuff is they go through all this work with the renovation or overseeding and they think that watering for a couple days is going to do it. And then it's like taking a medicine and then just forget like five days in, you're like, yeah, I don't want any more of this. I'm good. So <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling better. And then, you know, two days later, you're 10 times as sick. Right. So, um, so the, the, you have to make it easy on yourself and you have to know yourself. So if you're not going to get up and go turn the water on at, you know, six o'clock in the morning for the first watering. Um, don't do that. You know, you, there's options that you have. So let's just talk about strategy for a second. First, um, the, you know, the light and frequent approach is tried and true works all the time. Um, no issues with it, you know, getting the seed bed dried out, um, every now and again, that, that becomes the, the trick as you get down towards closer to it's time to start mowing and things like that. So kind of going through those first couple weeks and it depends on species and everything like that. If you're getting tall fescue or ryegrass and you're getting grass up in, you know, four to eight days, then you're going to get to that point quicker than you would if you've got bluegrass where you might get seed up in as little as seven days and possibly as many as 21 days. So in balancing that all out, and the, the rule of thumb I try to use is if we see, um, puddles and things like that, we're probably a little bit too wet. You know, at the time that we water, we should, you know, it should look like it's almost mud. You know, it's, it's going to look wet. And if we're timing this out, right. And so here in Columbus, Ohio, again, it's just what I know, but uh, we can go maybe about four or five hours at the most, at the most, you know, so typical uh, we're more closer to like three or four. So here a, a, a basic water schedule that I would have for, uh, an overseed or a, a new lawn renovation type of thing, situation would be basically we'd start our first um, our first watering cycle about 8 a.m. and then we would wait. We'd try to get that base moisture worked in there, and that's going to take a little bit longer. So I wouldn't be every three hours from there. I'd wait until about one, maybe two o'clock, and you kind of have to gauge this the first few days that you're out there. But um, say one, two o'clock in the afternoon, so we've let four or five maybe six hours pass. And then we're going to go and, and try and dial that in of every three hours. So usually like one, four and seven, and I can, I can feel pretty good about it. Sometimes that seven o'clock doesn't even need to happen. So mm -hmm. uh, you can go more frequently and it really depends on your soil type. It depends on the coverage that you have uh, with your sprinklers, whether they're in ground or if they are above ground. Um, Yep, But you've got some different options there too. Yeah, I was well. going to say very similar to my climate here. Um, it depends on when you do this, obviously, because if it's still pretty humid, that water can last you a lot longer period of time Definitely. from my experience. So if we're talking about that, I mean, that's going to be much different than if you're in 
Denver trying to do this and there's no humidity at all, then the more frequent is going to be very important. But I think what I've seen is pretty similar schedule to what you were talking about. Sometimes, uh, depending on the morning humidity, I can stretch it a, a bit into maybe that first watering in the morning goes to like maybe 10, something like when the dew okay. has kind of come off. Yeah. But but yeah, you just watch it. I mean, preferably if you can start this on a weekend and watch the first couple days, if you're not going to be able to be home, um, then that would be best. And that's what I think a lot of people also run into is they, they try to do this, but then, and maybe it's a little bit easier this year with more people being home. But in the past, I saw so many people say, well, I'm not home in the afternoon, so I didn't water. I just let it go and then I turned it on at night and then I'm like, well you know that's that might work but it's not the best scenario yeah and i think the other yeah night nights asking for a lot of trouble and if you know a hose blows up if you have above ground or if a head gets stuck on your automatic you know in ground system you're not going to see it now granted if you're at work or something like that and out of the home you might not see it during the day either but the likelihood of something like that happening or you being able to catch it seems far greater um, during the day than at night. So, you know, for the above ground folks, um, if you're going to drag a hose and things like that, those battery operated valves are killer. I mean, they're, uh, I don't know what they are now. I know several years ago they were like probably 40, 50 bucks and you can program a schedule in there. You set the clock, you tell it what time you want it to start, how long you want it to water and off you go. So, and same thing with the, uh, the automatic guys, you know, there's, there's features inside your controller and I would really try to make sure you understand your controller um, and the features that it has to take control over that and, and make sure that you're able to do everything you can. I mean, I've seen a lot of people that have an automatic system that literally go out to the clock and are turning it on multiple times because they don't know that they can set multiple start times or they don't know how to use a cycle and soak feature if they have that on their, on their clock. So uh, I'm one of those are, guys, Ryan, cause I like control, you know, that. <laughs> Well then, you need to get you need to get the. Uh, but I have the, the app. I have the app. Okay. So okay, I, I, okay. I do everything from my phone. But I am one of those people. Like I sit in my office and I'm like, okay, I want to do a syringe right now. So I just go to my manual, like press the zone, turn it on, watch it, make sure it comes on, and then I go to the Man. next one. You gotta, you gotta, li- you gotta live a little. You I know? know. Let that technology work for you. I know. So. Um, but anyhow, so the uh, the other part that I was going to say there too is if you're trying to judge the water, so the importance of watering, all that, here's the best way that I've found to judge. When I, like I said, after you've watered, you don't have um, you know streams of water trying to drain off your turf and things like that. You haven't overwatered. It's not puddled up uh, in most spots or generally speaking, you know, might have a couple low spots or some small bird bass, things like that. But that's kind of dialing in the water. So it should be, you know, uh, sticky and tacky, but it shouldn't be like sopping mud wet. And so the key is if you're going to dry down and it's going to be tough because it's probably not going to be even all the way across the yard. So you kind of have to make a little bit of a judgment call here, but the easiest way to tell is it should still be moist and you should still be able to push your thumb in and not have a bunch of soil pull off on your thumb. That's when, you know, it's still too wet and you don't need to water yet. So I should be able to make an indentation with my thumb and it stays put like a piece of modeling clay, something like that. Uh, the other t- trick or, or tip you can try and use is either take a pocket knife or take a key on your key ring, stick it in like the top inch or so of soil. And if you pull it back out, you can push it in no problem because it's, it's moist and, and soft enough. 
that you can pull it back out and there's no mud sticking to it. Um, that's a good indicator too. So that's when you know that you're right there and then um, you probably want to schedule your next watering cycle mm-hmm. right after that. So, yeah. And from my experience, I, I just think don't overthink it too much. Like don't, yeah, don't yeah. get too crazy on, Oh, I went seven minutes today <laughs> and I should have went nine or like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's not that crazy to where you're going to still have good results, but just don't, decide not to water essentially is the main thing. Yeah. And the other thing too is kind of playing the rain. Um, so if you do have a, you know, a battery operated valve on your hose, you know, knowing that, Hey, I need to go out there and just turn the water off to the spigot so it doesn't kick on. Or if you don't have a rain sensor on your, um, controller that you're, you know, enabling the rain hold. So it doesn't, doesn't water for those days. So take that into account as well. Hopefully you do get some, uh, some rain and you can make it happen. But, uh, if you're, if you're all irrigation all the time, yeah, just like you said, be vigilant, use common sense. Yep. In terms of then training, you know, it to start going less frequent, you talked about that just for a second, a a little bit ago there, but it kind of depends on grass type. And I was telling my neighbor this the other day when we were talking about it too, because I was like, if we get some ryegrass going in there, I mean, I've seen ryegrass ready to mow at day 13 or 14 you know it just depends like what your conditions are but so in terms of that and trying to get to that point how do people figure out when to transition that watering to not as much of the you know the infrequency but a little heavier doses a little less often yeah absolutely so you know deeper and infrequent so i always kind of judge it by what you just said the mowing so as we we feel like we're nearing that stage where we're ready to put the first mill on, I'm trying to dry that out for, you know, a day or so. I don't want to have um, soil conditions that are super dry. They're going to stress the new grass out and the seedlings and whatnot. I also don't want to have soil that's so wet that we're going to have tire tracks that we're putting in our newly graded, you know, and repaired and leveled lawn. So, Again, you can test that out and kind of proof your theory a little bit, you know, in the days leading up to that and kind of eyeball it and say, okay, it looks like, you know, we're going to be mowing sometime in the next week, you know, and you start doing those experiments where you shut the water off for longer, let it go a little bit longer and understand too, as those plants mature and as they get bigger, they're going to use more water. So in the beginning, we're just trying to create a, you know, a moist and and, um, ripe environment for them to be able to uh, establish and get going. And as that process transitions into, you know, now we're pushing out, you know, three and four and five leaves at a time, that is when we start using up um, way more water resources uh, than what we have in those first couple of weeks. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's where that transition needs to come. And again, kind of planning ahead and thinking about when you're going to mow and how often you're going to have to mow, uh, you might push it and balance out the weather and things like that. So we might want to mow it when it's 95 degrees, but we also need to water it when it's 95 degrees. So mowing on the back end of a heat wave when we've watered, maybe a little bit more to keep things going, probably not good because we could create tire track issues or something mm-hmm. like that. That's why I so, really like those. And I've shown this quite a bit on my channel. It depends on what kind of area you're dealing with. It's not for everybody, but it's why I really like those manual reel mowers at the beginning, like the, the cheap ones. They, if it's dialed in well, cutting clean, and it's so light that you don't have to do any turnaround, like you get to the end of a pass, pick it up, move it. Um, I, I really like using those in that scenario. It's not for everyone, obviously. but oh, And you're right. It's not for everybody, but I, I do agree. I think there's some um, 
validity to that where it's the lightest weight thing you can do. I mean, unless you're going to go out there and the quality of cuts absolutely abysmal. So please don't do this, but take like a, a weed whacker out there and, you know, not even touch the actual surface of the soil other than where your feet go. I, I do think that's, that's got some merit to it. So if, if people are willing to give that a shot, it's definitely a way to, uh, get it cultured in a little bit better, at least to start, you know, at some point you're going to, if you're going to be more higher cut, you definitely want that suction that you get from a rotary mower, but at least in the beginning, first couple mows, I can see where that would be an effective and valuable tool. Mm-hmm. So how do people make a decision on when to start mowing? That is another big question. So I'm looking at a couple of things. Uh, well, f- I'll say three things first and foremost, overall turf health if we've gone through, again, we've gone through a really, really hot stretch or something like that, or we're leading into a super hot stretch. Uh, those are things that are dry, humid, whatever it might be. And at some point you got to mow your grass, but um, you can kind of know what the extremes are in your local area and what you need to do and, and maybe where you'd pump the brakes and where you can press the gas. But so overall turf health is one. Um, if there's any other pests that I'm seeing, particularly disease and things like that, in a uh, new seating situation would be things I would be looking at. And then beyond that, the other two things would be density, you know, so do I have a bunch of, you know, patchy areas that maybe haven't come in yet or a little bit slower on the take, uh, that type of thing. That would be something where I'd like it to be as even as it possibly can be, but knowing that it's, it's very seldom that we get, you know, a great catch across 95 plus percent uh, all at once. Um, You got to really have things dialed in and can, have a lot of things go your way to do that. So density too. So if we're above say 70%, and I know we mentioned the Canapeo app, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the last one, that that's a good tool to kind of use and quantify that for you if you're not sure. And then lastly, um, height, you know, so if, if we're trying to maintain this lawn at um, sub one inch, then I better not let it get more than like an inch and a half or so before we start doing that first moment. And, that might mean um, waiting a little bit longer to build some density. That might mean that we have to mow over some less dense areas to get started with and then fill those areas in uh, with additional seed and that sort of thing. But I'm, I'm, you know, maybe no more than twice your height of cut, your desired height of cut below, uh, say, three inches, three inches and below. So if it was three, I wouldn't let it get more than six. And if, it, if you were going to, your intended height of cut was, three quarters of an inch, I wouldn't let it get above an inch and a half before you start mowing. So that's sort of good rule of thumb. Um, if you're one of those people that mows at three plus inches, I mean, that that's great and everything. And I, but I, six inches is about the max. So, and understand too, um, you know, the one third rule. So don't go from six down to three in one shot. Like that's a big no, no. Uh, the one third rule is still in effect, even on new seedlings and especially so, so on new seedlings because they're young, they're juvenile plants are not ready to take the rigors of, um, that type of a, a cutting situation. So that would be the other thing is, is start high, work your way down, uh, as you go and don't be, um, don't be afraid to lower the mower, um, as you get going, but definitely give it, um, two and three and maybe even four mows at a time on a height before you go down to the next step, especially if you're on a rotary mower, it's a little bit easier to dial in if you're on a reel. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's what I've, I've pretty much found. That's why I like that ryegrass cause I get mowing very quickly. And especially if I'm going to keep it under an inch, I'm like, yes, like 10 days in let's mow. Yeah. yeah. You're not on the wagon too long. You yeah. fall off pretty quick. Yeah. That's good. That's yeah. good. <laughs> 
Now, I did a video on this as part of my renovation last year, and Ryan helped okay. me a lot with this. But seating on slopes is something that also can get very interesting. And I have a sloped area on the north side of my house that when we get some decent storms, you will definitely see the water running down to the low point and it kind of pools down there. So I was seeding and I saw some storms coming and I was like, oh man, I don't know. Should I let this ride? What should I do? And he was like, nope, you've got to get this blanket and you've got to get it down today. And so I ended up finding one, but we're talking about the Futera Netless is what I used last year. And it's kind of like a, a, I don't know, like a wood fibers that they sort of weave together and what happens is then when it gets wet, it like sucks down to your soil and actually just holds everything there. And I can't remember the stats on how much water it can withstand, but it's pretty crazy when I looked at some of the stats and tests that they had done. So Yeah, it, it's a great tool. I mean, what I remember you sending me pictures and I can't remember. If, did you do a follow-up video to kind of show the results after? I yes. know it's been sort of like seen. Okay. Yep. Okay. So you know, I mean, you tell me, you, you use it in probably the most extreme situation. I've used it in areas, you know, that have been either, you know, seated late in the season where we need some additional protection or, um, in areas, you know, some, some slopes, some hillsides, but I use it in a little bit different, um, situations than what you do. So Mm -hmm. did you have any issues at all with it? you know, the only, washing out the only, and I didn't have any issues with it washing out at all. We had quite a bit of rain, a couple of major storms with like more than a couple inches at a time that happened. And I didn't have anything major wash out. It was awesome. But the only thing that I did find was, and this might've just been application wise and me being a rookie at it, but I found a few areas that sort of looked like a bubble afterwards, like they didn't get fully sucked down to the ground. So then I had grass mm. growing under those actually much better because it was getting a little more air and heat in that space. Mm-hmm. But so that was the only thing I started removing some of those areas over time and just letting that grass grow up. But everything now is uniform and, and looks fine. But no, that's, that's good. I mean, that, that's, again, it's there, it's an insurance policy, right? Because if you're seeding with whatever, you know, if you're seeding with grass seed that, you know, is going to cost you, let's just say it's, you know, 10 bucks per thousand square feet. And you would probably, I mean, you can speak to your particular situation best, but if you did that, you know, four or five times over and only had half of it take, that's a pretty bad situation to be in versus a one and done. Yep. Right. And that's, that's where it goes into, you know, you lose, it's not just like you can see it anytime you want, you have a window to do it in. So making the most of that weather window is is absolutely crucial. So. And that happened to me too because I did not use any covering out on the little street section that I renoed last year at the pretty much the same time. Ended up seeding it three times <laughs> and it didn't, you know, you get you, you get too late like you said and then this spring I was dealing with more weeds than usual coming in and and having to do some sort of work on the spring side whereas the other one that I used that blanket on I was already mowing like a thick turf by the end of the fall. I'm sorry I made it too easy on you. I, I know. Really do I know. I know you like to beat yourself up and I know and really make it difficult, but uh, it's okay. It's, sometimes it's good to just you know uh, knock one out of the park and trot around the bases and just be done. Yep. You know, go back to the dugout, sit down, wait for your next day to be. So, yeah. Hey, by the way, speaking speaking of that, I, I do have to get this in, and it was a great 
segue. So uh, go tribe. Tough night for your Twinkies last night. Yeah, so, I was going to ask you about, have you been watching any of this baseball with oh, these I, I, cardboard I watch cutouts? Be- <laughs> the cardboard cutout thing is just is weird. Uh, I don't know. I mean, w- w- we can definitely talk more more sports maybe uh, on a future one, but I had to get in there about uh, my guy Shane Bieber carving up uh, the Twins lineup like a butcher last yeah, night. Yeah, I, I know. I actually didn't catch that game, but I get the uh, little alerts on my phone. I did watch the game uh, a couple this week. But yeah, the, the cardboard nice. thing is weird, and hockey starts this weekend. Hockey does start, so and that'll be interesting to see. I watched an exhibition game from a couple days ago, and they're not doing the, the cardboard thing, which is good, but when someone scores a goal and there's no one cheering, it's a bit not like <laughs> weird, so... Yeah, it's like, you know, very, very low-level junior hockey or, or rec hockey or something like that. But Yeah, it reminded me of the beer league that I played in. Uh, like I know, I, well, <laughs> the beer league, oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, there, well, there probably was a little bit of hooting and hollering, I imagine, going on with that. But, yeah, you know, so I'm, I'm you know, I, I had to get that in there because it's nice to see sports coming back. It's been great to have grass and turf and, and stuff as, uh, you know, the outlet that really never left. But uh, it's good that we can... Uh, we can weave some of those in. It always helps when, you know, a Cleveland team beats a Minnesota team. I, yeah. I, I feel better. I know I do. So I saw one but, comment from last episode that said Browns versus Vikings in the Super Bowl question <laughs> mark. And then like ha 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 for like an entire, you know, major filling of the comment section there. So there's a lot of laughter about that. Baker Mayfield 2020. Yeah. Get it. So uh, you know, back to this stuff, the seating of slopes, you know, one other, one other tip that could help if you have a, if, if you're going to go the blanket route, um, even if, even if you're not, it can help, but I would recommend, you know, one or both of these things is if you can go, you can go to like Home Depot, any of the big box and get that plastic, like, um, paver edging stuff. Mm-hmm. And I actually saw this, uh, at a golf course here, they recently tweeted this out and it really makes sense, um, about, nailing that stuff in the ground, you know, it's only an inch or so wide. So it's not going to impact if you've got a seed area above the slope that you're trying to get in, or even if you have existing, you have a little bit of dieback or a little bit area that you have to reseed after, but you pound the stuff in to the ground with just some, um, you know, five, six inch nails and you leave it there and it acts as a baffle. So if you've got water that's sort of sweeping across your lawn and going to go downhill, this baffles and slows that water down so that you have, uh, less velocity going down the hill, at least to start, and less volume going down the hill, at least to start. So, um, again, things like that help of how you manage water that's going into that area just as much as the area itself. Mm-hmm. So, take that under advisement as well. Okay. And I think the other thing, I have used some of those other straw type blankets in like a really large yard situation. Uh, yeah. the, the couple acres that my friend was doing, he had kind of a sloped area. And we mm-hmm. have used those. They did work. I mean, not nearly like the the Futera does, but the cost of the Futera is also very high compared to the other straws. So, yeah, I want to say, yeah, I just did this a little while ago, but I want to say, you're like eight or so cents, eight ten cents a square foot on the the straw, like the netted straw blankets that you can get at a big box, and then the Futera. I want to say that stuff. Uh, you remember what you paid? I want to uh, say it was about seventy-five bucks, something like that. Anyhow, uh, yeah, you're you're almost you're almost double there. So you're about you know thirteen to fifteen cents a square foot on the Futura. So you know it does add up. And um, again, it's those are special situations that 
you don't want to have to do it again. Nobody wants to have to walk up on the side of the hill and seed and fertilize and yep. take care of all this stuff. So get it in, get it done right, and you'll be a lot happier in the end. Yeah, and, and the question too was where can you get that? Because I had a bit of difficulty in finding the Futero. So usually like a landscape supply, like somewhere where a landscape company goes to get you know, their rock borders or their mulch or any of that stuff that might have like an erosion control type of thing. Exactly. You'll see, you'll see some, a supply house like that in most major and mid-sized cities just because of highway projects, um, roads, schools, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of erosion control stuff that goes into that. And so they'll generally carry that. And then site one um, also carries it. I don't think they stock it nearly everywhere, but uh, they can get it, but you're gonna you're gonna pay some okay. some markup on on yeah. it from Spark Site One. So okay, there's uh, I know we're already at like an hour and twenty minutes, but I think yeah, so uh, we can. I got two more into- two more right, questions that I want to get to for sure, and then maybe right. we'll move our like after renovation care, like what you should do going into the rest of the season Perfect. to the next episode. But okay, so the first question is a project that I'm maybe possibly working on in a large yard situation out in the country. And this guy has some pretty good equipment like a skid steer and probably going to hardly rake an area that's going to smooth everything out. But then what would be your sort of steps going forward after that in terms of getting the seed down? And, you know, in a large situation, you do some of that stuff, obviously, with sports turf, but you have a lot different equipment that you can use. Yeah. um, You know, so a typical situation like that, you could do a couple of things. One would be just a general um, slice or drill seeder that you would see um, commonly like a, a rental yard or something like that that you put on the back of the tractors. I, I know um, they make them for skid steers as well for the front of them. Uh, and so those, uh, those are a lot easier to control rate. Um, and, you know, also you can make sure um, that you're properly calibrated over a much smaller area. So, you know, the width of the seeder and you make one pass and you can kind of tell um, that you're on your rate versus, you know, the other dire- other direction you can go would be getting um, like a large three-point three point fertilizer spreader for the back of a tractor and just spreading your seed out. Now, I'd only recommend doing that if it was like a tall fescue or ryegrass just because those are bigger seeded varieties and they can handle just, you know, very minimal soil contact and be uh, still effective at, at germinating an establishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, with bluegrass, which you know, it's possible that you're doing that on a large lawn. Um, definitely would only go with the, uh, the slice or the drill seeder. And I'd be going at half a rate in two separate directions too. Mm-hmm. So, and I'd really do that. It's hard to, hard to get, um, you know, some of the, like say tall fescue, if we're on bare ground and we're seeding eight to 12 pounds per thousand square feet, you can't get that out of a, um, a slice seeder. You're going to have to go two directions in order to do that. So going yeah. on the, the 45 degree angle, that's a really key piece. So if that soil after they actually did the cultivation part, you know, if it's not set up that well in terms of, uh, you know, it's not packed down, what would you do there? Would you consider maybe like rolling it at first or something to kind of get the seed bed? Yeah, absolutely. So I would do a couple of things. Um, in an ideal world and even if not, so we'll talk about ideal and practical, you know, ideal world, we're going to take a drag mat, you know, so it could be anything from a piece of chain link fence, which is going to be a little bit rougher grade versus, you know, a true, um, you know, the, the square steel drag mats, the flex mats that, uh, you can get from different sites. I'm not sure if you offer one in your store, but, um, those are, 
those are really uh, nice to kind of smooth out areas like that that have been Harley raked that you're just trying to smooth out some minor imperfections and get your grade um, as smooth and as even as possible. Not necessarily level, but smooth and even. And so uh, if you did that, you know, just going over it with a, uh, what we would call a proof roll, right? So we can use our tires, we can use a pull behind roll or something like that just to set the soil up. If you have irrigation, I'd run the irrigation ahead of that just to get yourself a little bit of moisture to pack stuff down and then go ahead and seed into that. Now, if you don't have irrigation and you're, you're doing it in a dry soil, I mean, I've done the same thing where, you know, we've um, Harley raked and then like either just pull the drag mat or we've laser graded behind that on, uh, on soil and then taken without irrigation, just taking the cedar right over top of that. The thing you got to watch about the irrigation versus the cedar is you don't want to do it like right afterwards because all that seed's going to stick to your uh, rear roller on that cedar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, it's okay to leave it dry. It's not going to hurt anything. Um, and the only thing you might have to do, and this is what I find a lot of times is um, if you have irrigation and you've got heads in the ground, or if you've got some type of obstruction or whatever, and the cedar's got to lift up or drive around it or something like that, those are areas I would go back with a leaf rake and just leaf rake those in. And I typically uh, we'll take a leaf rake and flip it over. So the tines are facing up and just kind of pull that seed in rather than put the tines down in and drag the seed. And I might move and disrupt some of that coverage that we have. So mm -hmm. again, just little things like that of screwing a lot of stuff up over the years and, yep. and learning the hard way. So, so let's say I would assume probably he would be looking more at like a tall fescue because it's not going to be a, a huge irrigated, you know, it's going to be non irrigated, just natural sure. area. But so after you, let's say we broadcast that down, um, yeah. then what would be after that in terms of any covering? I mean, you could probably do with like maybe like a straw or something kind of out across everything. But I, you know, if it, if it were me and I were going to spec it in a professional situation, I would have, um, I would seed it with whatever means you want to, whether that be the broadcast spreader. Um, or, you know, being a little bit more precise and using uh, a slit seeder. That said, once that's all done and you've got all your pre-plant stuff down, so if you're going to do tenacity, if you're going to do starter, all that stuff down, the last step I would have somebody do, and I would pay somebody to come in and do this, is hydro mulch it. Okay. Um, and again, you're talking about, you know, layers of protection and insurance and things like that. If I've got a large lawn and I've seeded an acre and I've spent, you know, at that point, probably close to a thousand dollars in material, you know, um, rentals, whatever I might have into it. I want to make sure it works. So to spend and say, Hey, you know, most, most hydro seeding contractors, you know, on the low end, just to come out and mulch it, uh, you're going to be 10 cents, maybe, you know, they might charge you more if it's a smaller job or something like that, but 10 cents a square foot, um, going up to say 25 cents a square foot. But again, it's that added insurance policy and you're going to have far better look than you would, um, by not doing anything at all, for sure. You're going to, you're going to help out with washouts and things like that, um, initially, and then also help to hold moisture. in when you do have a rainfall event, it's not just gone in a day and you're sitting there baking out again. So yep. uh, some of those same folks will offer straw blowing services. If you really want to do that, you it might save you a little bit of money, but uh, you're going to have some cleanup and some other things to do too. So, okay. But yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good advice there. I think uh, something I may get into in the future myself in terms of some of these areas that I might have going on in the future. So I'm just kind of thinking about all of that now, but uh, it sounds, it sounds kind of fun to me. So <laughs> 
you know how this goes. Se- okay. Right, so- hey, there's always always something else to do. But last question here is okay. a question that I saw the last couple days. We've got probably in the forecast at least a week. Maybe I was looking at the 14 day um, yesterday about quite a bit cooler temperatures coming up than maybe would be normal for August or beginning of August. Should someone consider seeding or their project, let's say they're in the renovation and they're ready to go, what, what's your idea there on maybe considering going for it now and what could possibly be a reason to wait? Based on the forecasts that I've seen through the Midwest, I, I would feel comfortable in going ahead with it. You know, if you're you know, the things to consider are if you're unirrigated, are you going to be able to keep up with watering? Um, other things would be if there is a spike in temperatures or something like that, are you prepared to um, either just accept the losses or apply a fungicide, you know, to prevent, you know, some of the issues that we might have with um, hotter and or wetter conditions. So those would be the, the trade-offs I'd be looking at. But if it were me, if you were asking me today, um, and recommending it to somebody, I would go for it. Like we're, we seem to be in a pretty good spot right now. Um, I'll probably be wrong and people will come up and, <laughs> and blast me, but you know, I'm, I, I, I tend to be on the aggressive side knowing that, um, t- and, and you can speak to this and I know time is of the essence in our podcast cause we're getting down to the end here and we got to wrap it up, but time is of the essence. You know, the, the longer you wait, the window closes faster and faster each day that you do wait. So Taking advantage of this and dealing with some of the um, the issues you might encounter on the front end are far, far and away more easy to deal with and recover from than if you wait too long and you're trying, you can't make it hotter, you can't make it sunny, you know, yep. longer or sun longer in the day, all that kind of stuff. So that's you know, something that I think people forget about too, which I've noticed the last you know couple weeks even is the sun changing so much, losing daylight. So if you're doing an area where right now maybe it's very sunny, like my front yard is pretty sunny, but then it's also as the sun gets less and less throughout the year, that gets more, <clears throat> excuse me, more and more shady. And those are things that it's not just about the temperature at that point. So no doubt. And I'll, uh, I'll send you a slide that we can throw up here on the, on the turf cast about, you know, just here in Columbus, what that, the, the waning of light looked like, you know, I kind of modeled it last year for, uh, some of the Bermuda grass fields we have here just to show people that, yeah, it's, it's 90 degrees in October, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're still um, photosynthesizing and produce and, and getting as much energy from the sun as we would in say June or July. Mm-hmm. So pretty interesting to look at and see how that degrades, you know, over time. And it's not always relative to temperature uh, or climate. Yeah. So. It's happened. I think the last couple of years for me too, where it seems like winter, not winter necessarily like snow and all that, but colder temperatures have come a little earlier to where my year almost ended <laughs> around the beginning of November, which sometimes it can go much longer. So that's, yeah. that's part of it. If I could get that seed going right now and have a, a yard in and, and all that, then That'd be, that'd be nice. And also, if it's going to be in the 70s, I saw a low of 52 coming for Monday. I might wow. sleep in my shed thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are going to say that you're weird, Ryan. I don't think you're weird. I mean, okay. I, I, I can take... safe space here. I can take all the space. smells and all, you know, it's fine, so... <laughs> Yeah. I mean, some people like sleeping around two cycle uh, oil and gasoline. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a thing. Yep. Oh man. Well, I think for today we covered that 
as well yeah. as we can. I think there's more to talk about in terms of the after program. Once you're mowing, what should your fertilizer program look like? How do you get into that first winter season? But I think for next week, that'd be something to talk about. Oh, we will definitely dig in. But uh, again, you know, I'm, I'm glad these are, I, I wouldn't say that they're running long. I'd say that they're, um, they're trying to be as complete as we can be, right? And try mm-hmm. to balance out all that information uh, that you can't get in a 10-minute uh, YouTube video. But really appreciate it, uh, the time again, and we'll try it again next week, right? Yeah, I think so. I think we're going to try to maybe transition this to just more of the audio thing because an hour and 30 long, you know, for video. And I had some people ask me, can you cut that up into 10 minute segments or something on each topic? I would love to be able to do that. But in terms of me making two other (laughs) 15 minute videos every week for my normal channel stuff, it gets to be a bit much. So we'll see. I think even just going through and having timestamps would be nice. Yeah. Timestamps would be perfect. So we can definitely work on it. You know, we're, we're here to evolve it and grow it and everything like that. But the most important part um, and I'll speak for both of us. It's just the information and, and getting that out to people that need it and want, uh, you know, correct and proper information and do with it what they will. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, Ryan. And thanks again for chatting about this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You as well, Ryan. And uh, get that sleeping bag ready for the shed. Okay. I will. All right. Take Ta- it easy. Talk to you later. <laughs>